0: Are you nuts? You can't go around making accusations against guys like that without proof.
1: There's the proof. What do you want? A written confession?
0: Look, I'd do what it takes to win in court.
1: By the book, right? Always by the book.
0: That's right. And if you and Pete had listened to me, he'd still be alive. Uh Uh-huh. That's what's eating you, isn't it?
1: You should have backed us up, pal.
0: You didn't have probable cause.
1: I got all the cause that I need. Welcome to The Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long.
0: And I am Cole Rollane. Each episode of The Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. We had a quick turnaround from our Magic Jack-O-Lantern episode to keep on our otherwise regular schedule. So here we are five days later at episode 90, and that is back to Erica's choice. What are we talking about today?
1: Before I explain what we're going to be discussing. I do want to add a little caveat here. We're not going to shy away from language in this one. It's kind of woven into the film. So parents, don't let your babies listen to this one maybe right now. Let them wait a few years. Now, having said that, October is a grueling month for us, maybe just for me, but I really feel it. We watched at least 31 films and recorded three main episodes and three bonus Patreon episodes. So we had to turn around like you mentioned and get out this first episode of November. This episode also coincides with voting for the midterm elections and everything that that's become fraught with. I had been thinking that I would do boyhood if the elections went one way and maybe a Bergman if they went the other. (laughs) And even that scope felt so overwhelming, especially as this episode comes out before we know the results. And then you, dear husband, reminded me of a film that I love, one for which a roared fuck you is the answer to any situation. And so I chose One Man Force from 1989, written and directed by Dale Trevelyan, director of such films as Heart of Stone timeless obsession playtime and las vegas weekend are you ready for me to do the rest of the credits like the trailer do it with john matuzak of the goonies ronnie cox of beverly hills cop sam jones from flash gordon sharon farrell of lone wolf mcquade and charles napier from rambo and also richard lynch from god told me to from our jack lantern episode After his partner is killed, a cop is hired to locate a kidnapped singer. Which, by the way, I'd completely forgotten about that subplot. But we'll get there in just a minute.
0: This one's kind of a departure for us. I think it's the first movie we've done in which the poster has the protagonist's measurements on it. Six foot eight inches. Two hundred and eighty pounds. Twenty-one inch biceps. Fifty-five inch chest. I don't think we'll do this again, maybe until we get to the films of Russ Meyer. Or... Digging into the Something Weird video catalog with those spy films starring Chesty Morgan?
1: Yikes. Can't wait. But this was also a straight-to-video release, which is a big departure for us as well.
0: Yeah, we tend to talk a lot about capital-A art on this show. At least that's my tendency. But there is more to cinema than that. So today we are talking about unbridled entertainment, and this movie is pure gold. Also, perhaps the most aptly titled movie I've ever seen.
1: I mean, are you gonna do it to the theme song that you invented?
0: Once again, you're trying to get me to give away my best stuff for free. That is top-tier Patreon-level material that you are talking about right there.
1: All right, pal.
0: Yes, visually, it's no great shakes. It's a glorified TV episode in structure and quality, I feel like. So much so that I keep expecting commercial breaks. Next week on One Man Force, everything about this screams VHS to me. It's not for Blu-ray purists. It's not for devoted denizens of the art house. So who is it for? Genre lovers. Fans of B-movies. Dare I say it, people with a certain amount of vision. Think about this. Let me ask you a question. Would you be one of those people who knew what you were looking at when you saw Detour? in 1945? Would you have just seen the bad rear projection and the $20 sets? Or would you have seen a film so noir and fatalistic that the screen couldn't even hold it all? I think stuff like this is a lot harder to judge in the moment. It's easy to sit back and appreciate it 70 odd years down the line after someone has canonized it for you already. But what about when you are confronted with it in real time? Are you willing to do the anointing? Are you willing to put your name on the line and say that this is a great thing right now? Would you be able to see it if you were that close to it?
1: I think sometimes I can probably, unfortunately, be a little bit of a snob, even though that's ultimately not my aim. I can definitely think that the things that I like are worth it, and the things that I think aren't worth it are not worth seeing generally. So I'm not sure I would have been one of those people with vision for detour, for example. But I like to think that nowadays, maybe as I get older, I can just give more things a chance and really just fall into them and enjoy them for their own sake, on their own merits. Whatever those relative merits might be.
0: Well, let's talk about the merits of one-man force, then. Coming at the end... Of the cycle of 80s cop action films. This essentially puts a six-eight-two hundred pound exclamation point on the genre. It's the film that takes the rogue cop trope and feeds it a mountain of drugs, basically. <laughs> it is, in its own way, perhaps the pinnacle of the renegade cop movie, I feel like. If you're just looking at it in terms of genre mechanics, look at the hand that we're dealt. There's an angry loose cannon. Oh, so angry. He goes at it hammer and tong with his by-the-book supervisor. His partner is killed, which sets him on a path to vengeance. He uncovers a bigger conspiracy that reaches its tentacles into the upper echelons. And did we mention he's a one-man force?
1: He's a one-man force <laughs> for good. You
0: are absolutely dead set on giving away my best stuff.
1: I can't help it. Ever since you started it, it's in my mind all the time. I walk around the house humming it. And it's pretty hummable. It is a synth knockoff of every cop score that came before it. It reminded me a lot of Beverly Hills Cop, but without that kind of bounciness, because it turns into that metal guitar pretty quickly. I just imagine John Parr is going to start singing at some point, right?
0: We're going to put a lot of things in quotation marks in this episode, probably, and I put forth that metal should be the first of those right there.
1: Okay, good point.
0: Yeah, from the opening credits, we are getting the good stuff. And by good stuff, I mean that distinctly 80s synthesizer score. Courtesy of David Michael Frank and the Fairlight Music Computer. I don't know if you remember this or not, but there was a time in the 80s in which music was going to be saved by digital technology. Do you remember how all that went?
1: I don't remember the saving part. I just remember it coming as a wash over me and Really, I guess not thinking about it, seeing those electronic drums and Duran Duran videos, but not thinking about what they meant.
0: Well, if you didn't buy music magazines, then you probably didn't see it as much. But in the early 80s, you could not open a music magazine without seeing an advertisement for those Simmons SDS 5 hexagonal drums. And I know a ton of your favorites used them Howard Jones, the aforementioned Duran Duran. Bobby Z, Neil Pert. Okay, maybe not that last yeah,
1: one. Yeah, you, you got some of my favorites at the beginning, and then you lost me.
0: Well, around the same time, a synthesizer-computer combo called the Fairlight CMI Computer Musical Instrument also took that musical world by storm. To be fair, it was pretty incredible, and it really did have a huge influence on the music industry. Peter Gabriel had one, Thomas Dolby, Herbie Hancock who was always an early adopter, Stevie Wonder, that orchestral sting and owner of a lonely heart, everyone has heard of Fairlight, even if they don't know it.
1: Because I definitely didn't know that it was a thing. And even to look at it now, that model, it looks like it's come from the future.
0: Well, it was everywhere. So much so that Phil Collins put in the liner notes of No Jacket Required that there is no Fairlight on this record. What would you guess for a price tag when this hit the market back in
1: 1980? Wait, 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 wait a second, though. I mean, anyone who has heard Susudio or seen the video knows there was no fair light in there. That's all people.
0: (laughs) All strings and all horns.
1: But back to your question. Oh, my gosh. I don't, I don't know. It had to have been expensive, I would guess. I'm going to say, I don't know, $8,000.
0: Add about twenty grand to that and then you're on target. Twenty eight thousand dollars, give or take. The price of a Porsche nine eleven in nineteen eighty dollars.
1: That's unbelievable. And it was also roughly the size of a Porsche, <laughs> right?
0: Well, I mentioned all that to give you an idea of just how state of the art this was. Working musicians could never have afforded this. I thought of it then as something completely out of reach. It had the sheen of the elite all over it. It sounded like money and excess. And you can hear that in the example that I associate it with most, the soundtrack for Miami Vice. It's perfect for that type of thing and for this type of movie. Not that this had the same budget, but by 1989, technology was becoming more affordable. So the score really is one of my favorite and most appropriate parts of the movie. It's so irresistible that I did have to compose my own lyrics to it, after all.
1: (laughs) Are you going to do them now, are you still going to make us wait?
0: I'm going to insert a huge gap of silence right here, after which I do nothing. (laughs) Okay. Well, the opening theme, that accompanies scenes of what, based on the smog, has to either be L.A. in 1989 or New Delhi right now.
1: It's at least the industrial armpit section of LA that we get to know pretty well.
0: Yeah, this opening panorama gives you an idea of the visual majesty that is in store for you for the next 90 minutes. And not to be outdone by the geographic splendor, we have the wardrobe. I think he wears sweatpants throughout this whole thing.
1: There's a lot of Adidas tracksuits and then windbreakers and just kind of interchange those and no shirts under the tops of the tracksuits.
0: Shall we break down this budget? I think at least 80% of it obviously went to cocaine. The rest (laughs) towards buying that used Fairlight to compose the score and then some workout gear.
1: That sounds fair. Now, we know we're in good hands because we immediately start in this longest car you've ever seen and it just decides... To plow into some boxes for really no reason. And then that car pulls up outside of some abandoned haunted hardware store. We don't quite know what we're getting into yet. We see our hero, John Matuzak, put pantyhose over his head. So we think, okay, some sort of a heist maybe. And I see his fancy high top sneakers. He pulls aside a metal door because he can... And then picks a lock, and he's got now not only the world's longest car, the world's longest gun, and it's drawn, and he's in some back room of some place. I think maybe I hear a tea kettle, and then we realize we're in a bar. Now he's creeping around all over the place, and he's got the gun cocked and aimed this whole time. There's a lady in a nightgown talking to some big chunk head in a tank top, and our masked guy draws a bead on them and says freeze. I haven't heard freeze in a long time, so that was pretty fun. And so he starts shooting, and then a whole bunch of people just wake up in the bar and start shooting back at him. My favorite is the guy who says, gotcha, sucker. And then the lady in the nightgown pulls out the water squirter, and we realize this was all a hilarious joke.
0: Yeah, it's just a playful shootout, you know, like you do. We find out it's essentially paintball. And this is just how they have fun and unwind, sneaking up on each other with guns. I think my favorite part of it was when he asked, how did you know I was here? They could probably hear him grinding his teeth. He can barely (laughs) keep his eyes in his head. John Matuzak's heart, I think, was probably the size of a basketball.
1: Unfortunately, that's probably true. Um, I'm going to bring the room down just for a second. He died, unfortunately, before the film came out. He died in June. The film came out in September. And part of his issue, it was all drug-related, but he did have an enlarged heart.
0: Well, to be fair, it does make my heart grow three sizes when we get to see the depth of the relationship here (laughs) with his partner and the family dynamic that they have going on. That's basically what this opening scene is doing for us.
1: It's his partner and best friend. And he is one of the family, really. But first off, all this fun aside, we gotta go see the lieutenant.
0: Right. We have our first clash with everyone's favorite uptight supervisor, Ronnie Cox. And he's playing a variation here on everything from the character he's played in Beverly Hills Cop to RoboCop. Things are clearly tense in the workplace, as much shouting as is happening here. But all I could think this whole time is, look, all I know is that George C. Scott gets to yell all the time, and they practically throw Oscars at that guy.
1: You know, that's a great point. Truly, John Matuszak has got charisma for days. I don't know, maybe I was just wrapped up in his own special charm. Did you feel any of that?
0: I do a little bit. I think it's probably a little bit more weighted because I was aware of the tragic circumstances. I think he was a good guy at heart who just had some serious problems. But he is equally capable, at least on this action cop level, of equally communicating both really intimidating tough guy and great big teddy bear.
1: I think there's always going to be that person that we have a bit of a blind spot for. And maybe John Matuzak just happens to be that person for me right now.
0: Is that... Sentimentality that's left over from the Goonies for you, or is that something else?
1: I'm going to say an absolute no to that, because when I saw the Goonies, I didn't know that that was John Matuzak under all of that makeup, and learning of that later didn't magically make him into somebody that I knew anything about. I wasn't a football fan. I didn't know any of his history particularly. I just think the guy's got something, and I wish that he had stayed around to realize more of that potential. But anyway, the lieutenant is definitely not buying anything he's trying to sell. No search warrant, no backup for the scheme that they have to try to track down a big shipment of drugs through an informant that they know.
0: Warrant? Backup? Maybe you haven't been listening. He's a one-man force, not a one-man wuss.
1: I guess so, and he is appalled slash enraged by this idea.
0: I think it's more of the latter.
1: Yeah, probably. And to me, it seems completely reasonable for the lieutenant to do all of this. They seem to both be doofus, loose cannon slash crazy, steroided out, insane people who should maybe not be on the force.
0: Are you saying you don't remember that short period when LAPD had the steroid squad? <laughs> Wasn't Lyle <laughs> Alzado? The Chief of all that
1: speaking of, did you ever see the sitcom that Lyle Alzado did? No,
0: I did not.
1: This was in Canada <laughs>
0: okay, God I
1: love Canada. It was called Learning the Ropes and I saw it in syndication. That's all I'm gonna say about it.
0: Was Tom Villard in it because otherwise why are you wasting my time?
1: <laughs> Good point. He may have guest starred. I did think for a time that Lyle Alzado and Jamtouza were the same person. But I realized no, I was incorrect. They're two different people. And did I mention that I think Jake's gun doesn't have a safety? He just never <laughs> seems to put it on and it always seems to be off while he is threatening people.
0: Well, it turns out that this big deal going down that they got wind of is a setup, and his partner gets shot. This makes him so angry that he picks up a refrigerator and kills the guy with it. <laughs> I literally cannot think of anything I've seen in an action film quite like this.
1: The trailer puts that fridge throwing front and center. It's pretty funny. It's got some narration that talks about how he was a dedicated cop sworn to uphold the law until an act of violence pushed him over the edge. But it shows him throwing that fridge before his partner actually dies instead of the other way around. But you gotta know your audience.
0: Well, Sam Jones really gets the short end of this deal. He's only in it for 15 minutes, give or take. And when he's killed here, Matuzak carries him off into the sunset in a very tender saxophone moment, something that likely could not happen in a film with a normal-sized hero. He literally dwarfs every one and every other thing on screen. This scene is notable, I think, because it exemplifies something that's key when approaching a bad, quote-unquote, film like this. These movies are really at their best when they force you to throw your expectations out the window and when there is massive friction between what a film is versus what we want it to be. As formulaic as this thing is, it still manages to do that in two ways. One, it turns all those cliches up to 11, and this is a perfect example. You see a lot of these cop-buddy action films with subtle or even not so subtle homoeroticism in them. But I cannot recall one in which a massive hunk cradles another massive hunk like a baby (laughs) and disappears into the waving fields of alfalfa while Careless Whisper plays in the background. And two, they really do legitimately subvert expectations from time to time. On paper... It should be the handsome, stable, matinee idol cop that is pushed over the edge when his lumbering ox of a partner gets killed. But this is the complete inverse of that. And in other cases, sometimes there is so much from column A that it becomes column B. For example, one that I don't think that they necessarily set out to subvert, but they do... That old chestnut of, he's a loose cannon, but damn it, he's the best we've got. I don't think anyone would ever say that about Jake Swan.
1: We've seen that kind of scene before. Of, Jake, you caused a billion dollars in damages, and you destroyed three city blocks, and you drove the mayor's car into a pool. Great work, Jake. But no, that does not happen. And truly, anyone who enjoys civil liberties of any kind should be glad of that. <laughs> Jake is staying at the bar where they all live, and there are stories on the news about this big crime wave and also this recent kidnapping that's taken place. this popular pop singer kidnapped at a club in the middle of a performance
0: um once again, I take exception to that, and here are quotation marks come into play. she is a Rock star. Their phrase, not mine.
1: You are so true. I was trying to correct it. That's Stacy Q, by the way, of Two of Hearts fame.
0: This kidnapping happens to get caught on film somehow, fortunately for comedy fans everywhere.
1: Fortunately, from many camera angles as well.
0: From this grainy footage, it looks like Stacy Q is performing at the Barstow Ramada Inn when the Beagle Boys come in and whisk her away until Scrooge McDuck coughs up the ransom.
1: But let's set Stacy Q aside for just a second, because Jake goes on a kill-crazy rampage against some of the people responsible for Pete's death and attacks them in a van like he's a slasher. And this continues as he is in a jail cell beating these people up and threatening to kill them. And unsurprisingly, this results in him getting suspended.
0: Literally the only thing I have in my notes as far as this suspension is you're suspended, fuck you, smash. That is how succinct this film is. That is all you know and all you need know. So he's been suspended, but he has to pay the bills so he gets his private investigator's license.
1: Well, really, we're told that he does. We don't really see it, and then it's just sort of an afterthought that we learn about.
0: We learn about it because Stacy Q, the rock star her manager, sends him to find her. I could use a cop like you, he says. Yes, who better to conduct a discreet investigation than an orc-sized human being whose heartbeat you can see in his neck veins that you only hired because you saw the news report about him extrajudicially busting skulls.
1: Well, of course it all makes perfect sense. As does his other role as the father figure for Pete's son, Ronnie. He's gotten in with kind of a bad crowd. I think he's upstairs in his room with the door shut, smoking dope with some bad kids. And when Jake finds out, it's pretty much the same conversation as with the lieutenant. Basically yelling at him, the kid slams out, and then he's got to throw in the, I love you, kid. But I want to stop here for just a second. That scene and many others like it are shot at such a odd angles in corners in odd profiles and I didn't realize that John Matuzak was as large as he was 6'8 and that makes perfect sense now. He's just so large compared to everyone else. Everybody else looks like they're 12 inches tall. This could also be because maybe everybody isn't working at the top of their game here. But I don't think John Matuzak was just ad-libbing all over the place so that they just had to fling the camera wherever he landed. But in some of these scenes, he really does look like a boulder compared to these other folks.
0: With all the things that had to have been cut, that would have made the main story more coherent. Why do you think they still found time for this subplot?
1: I want to hold off on that until the very, very, very end because okay. I have a very minor theory As minor as basically the subplot is treated. But I guess it's to give him a softer angle?
0: We have to show the twos' range.
1: Definitely. He's got it. Believe me. It goes something like this. Fuck you. I love you. And scene.
0: You're leaving out his partner and the old. you're not my dad, which is basically what happens here. (laughs) Right. The kid runs off before they can have a teachable moment with the heavy bag. But don't worry. It's 1989. There will be a montage.
1: Definitely. In the meantime, however, we have what I consider to be my favorite scene. How about you?
0: I think I'm right there with you. Again, this is one of the staple scenes of the genre. You see this over and over and over again, but never quite like this. It is the classic cop goes to a sex slash punk slash goth slash gay club bit. Until he goes berserk, this place is awesome.
1: None of these people look like they would be normally in the same crowd, but finally, it's a place where we can all be together and agree on something. Even the Nazi punks. Even the people in fetish gear. It's a pansexual utopia.
0: Of course, he smashes everyone. And this fight scene is bananas. There's a guy in a safari outfit with a little person on a chain. A bantamweight Latino is in a human-sized birdcage. Stefan, on his best day, could not come up with what is going on in this club.
1: I mean, ostensibly he's there to find people involved in this kidnapping, but he is 20 feet tall, so everyone can see him from any vantage point, but somehow he can't see the gang of these people until they walk right past him, and he still throws them around airplane style.
0: I think it was this scene that led me to the metaphor that I feel like best sums up the proceedings here overall. This movie is all treble. You take the standard (laughs) renegade cop movie, you take out all the base and all the mid range, and one man force is what you have left.
1: Do we need to get into the multiple chases and then that apartment complex and the girl who helps him out to escape from the other guys and then they think he's got him trapped and behind a locked door and then he busts through the door over top of them? Do we need to get into any of that stuff? (laughs) I don't I don't know to what end any of it was or where any of it goes, but it is fun.
0: Well, we often talk about how the greatest sin a film can commit is being boring. One man force does not know the meaning of the word. If there's ever a quiet moment, it's only because he's hiding behind something for a few seconds, waiting to jump out and yell and smash someone with a hotel ice machine.
1: <laughs> did that happen?
0: In my mind it did. <laughs>
1: okay. It may have also in the movie.
0: Well, obviously he gets arrested. <laughs> <Sorry>. That's okay. <laughs> well, obviously he gets arrested after this melee and the lieutenant
1: obviously comes yeah. to
0: bail him out. It gives him a chance to drop some exposition on us and warn the twos to lay off.
1: I think his exact words were, or at least I wrote it down this way. I've had it with you.
0: We're definitely working our way through the eighties action playbook. Before the end credits roll, you'll be able to mark the following off of your action movie bingo cards. Computer whiz. One-liners of debatable quality after kills. A slimy lawyer. A wheelchair-bound pal who is a munitions expert. Multiple empty warehouses. Multiple explosions. And perhaps my favorite of them all, the workout montage with the kid. He's trying to get his life back on track, reasonably so. But the local young toughs are still giving him a hard time. The solution? Apparently it's getting a good pump with some 12-pound dumbbells.
1: It works for me. Why do you think I do P90X?
0: I think you can outbench this kid three times over. I have to say, the irony of Matusak delivering this Reagan-era, don't-do-drugs sermon? It's like everything else in this movie. It is off the charts.
1: While this is happening, though, Jake has put together that the kidnapping is involved with whomever killed Pete. Based on what? We've been watching the (laughs) same movie so far, right? And so when the lieutenant asks him, do you have any proof? No, he doesn't. It's a big old leap. But anyway, we're going with it. The conspiracy goes even bigger than all of this kidnapping and Pete's murder. It's really all about money laundering. South American drug lords getting their money cleaned by some super rich white American bankers. I only mention that so I can talk about the next club that he goes to where Santiago, the South American drug lord, is. Have you ever been in the snack bar of a very low-rent golf course? That's what this club looks like. Anyway, moving on.
0: A Bushwood, it ain't. I bet with that hat, Santiago gets a free bowl of soup.
1: Good one.
0: (laughs) Well, Jake will have his revenge against Chico for getting Pete killed. This delightfully results in a car chase that is a particular treat because of the direction the score takes. It's something that we see in other 80s films. I think the last thing we watched that had this happen was Commando. But apparently, David Michael Frank shelled out good hard money to get the five and a quarter inch floppy disk that had the steel drum program on it, and by God, he's going to use it. Now, Santiago is from South America. Is this supposed to indicate that Chico is Caribbean?
1: I don't know. Or maybe other people involved with the drug exchange? Hell if I know at this point. All I saw was one long car running into another long car, and then a chase ensued. I thought you were going to talk about how insane Chico's death here is. It looks like Chico's going to come to a complete stop in this car, but instead he drives over part of an industrial site and the car explodes. The whole time we hear Chico or someone on the soundtrack screaming, and Jake says, I'm going to get you Chico with 50 O's.
0: Okay, Chico down, 50 to go. <laughs> yet another visit to yet another club. And this time, the charms of Matuzak are so irresistible.
1: <laughs> he, I mean, he is wearing a windbreaker, and he talks about the size of his penis, and they're dancing to Falco. So what else are you going to do?
0: What the hell is happening with this girl picking him up? I am beyond curious about the Slovenian mail-order bride service that assisted with the casting (laughs) of this role.
1: The high-cut panties came with it.
0: It's just another one of the ways for me to get a foothold into a movie like this. There are all kinds of strategies for approaching bad films. If you're a creator, you can learn to make good movies by watching bad ones. If it's just for entertainment, it simply boils down to going all in, I feel like. And the spectrum of that goes from Surrendering completely to it on one end, all the way to bringing every single thing in your life to bear on it on the other end. Either way, just don't half-ass it. That is just wasting everyone's time. If an element of it takes you out of the film in some way, that's not necessarily a negative. Go with it. These odd questions like this that it makes me ask are just one more way to relate to it. It makes me stop and think, these are real people. Think of them that way for a second. What would you say to these actors if you encountered them in real life and not on the internet? That might sound silly and maybe a little more effort than you intended to expend on one-man force, but why even press play if you are not willing to engage with it and meet a film on its own level? At one point in my life, I was probably guilty of that. I was unable or unwilling to do that with films that I considered bad, quote-unquote. I'm glad I got over it because look at what I would have missed out on.
1: Thundercrack.
0: (laughs) That's a piece of genius. One of these days, that is going to end up on this show.
1: Nope. Well, I guess if you get a guest host. I'll be out of town that week.
0: I was hoping you would show up as your alter ego, the greasy strangler, and help me do that one.
1: (laughs) I would have to. That is a good idea. Let's file that one away.
0: Well, he's been seduced and tricked, and he's tortured and beaten because of it.
1: Well, it turns out he was right, at least in part, because this place that he's been brought to, he's inside some stables, and there is Leah, our missing rock singer. Don't get too attached to her, because we don't really see her again, even as she's begging him to get her out of there. For now, he can only get himself out and then try to bring back some help.
0: And that brings us to what, for my money, is hands down the best action sequence of the entire film.
1: 100% agreed.
0: He comes to in the back of a pickup truck and has to incapacitate first the passenger and then the driver, whom he ends up choking, while the guy is driving the truck that he is hanging from the side of. You just got one man forced.
1: <laughs> this is all while they're driving on a winding cliff road, and you forgot to mention that he was nailed inside of a box. He had to get out of that first to then choke this guy out.
0: This guy's a regular six-foot-eight Doug Henning.
1: <laughs> I thought he was a ice skater. I think he is somebody else.
0: He looks like one. He's kind of willowy <laughs> and very lithe. But he is full of illusions. Well, you mentioned that Stacy Q doesn't make it very far. In fact, she did. Someone is cleaning up loose ends.
1: This all comes back to Jake's theory again, connecting all of these loose ends, because we don't really see any of it happen, we just see the dead bodies. And his explanation is plausible enough, so let's just go with it. Now it's time to bring it all home to the rich guys pulling the strings.
0: He leans on this slimy lawyer, records his confession. I think the only archetype missing from this whole thing was an art dealer. Where was the art dealer in this?
1: Maybe import-export.
0: Okay. You know who could sniff that out. Some legal eagles. That's what we need here.
1: Some love touch? (laughs)
0: Gross. (laughs) Well, this just proves that Jake was right all along. He takes this recorded evidence to the lieutenant. The lieutenant finally sees it his way. After all this time, I guess whatever low bar for burden of proof that is necessary has been met. And so we're all heading towards this final showdown.
1: Forget it, Jake. It's El Monte. (laughs) That's a super deep cut from the film. I don't know. Do you need more proof? I hope not because I really didn't follow much of it.
0: Who needs proof when you've got a tank? What is it that Chekhov says about tanks? One must never place a loaded tank on screen that isn't going to go off. Because one second, it's 1989 Los Angeles, and then all of a sudden it's Escape from New York up in here. Every barrel at this construction site somehow mysteriously now contains a garbage fire. There are these explosions that look more like a fireworks display when it comes down to it. And we discover, shock of all shocks, the lieutenant has sold him out.
1: Which honestly is too bad because he's been right the whole time. Jake didn't have any proof, any probable cause. He couldn't have won it in court. He was completely on the wrong side of this. But the lieutenant apparently had a gambling problem, so that's how he got in with the bad guys. That's how they always get you. It's true. Or if it's not that it's drugs. Or if it's not that it's prostitutes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera.
0: The saddest part for me here at the end is that Robert Tessier meets his grisly and undignified end right here. Side note, I love Robert Tessier. Do you? If you grew up like I did with a certain strain of 70s action films, specifically those of Hal Needham, then you were intimately acquainted with that bald head. He was one of the greatest stunt men out there, and whenever you needed a quality heavy in the 70s, you called Robert Tessier. You see him in The Longest Yard and Hooper and Cannonball Run. He's a bare-knuckle fighter against Charles Bronson in Hard Times. He's one of the reasons that the very first cinema-related thing I ever wanted to be when I was little was a stuntman. Between Hal Needham films and Evil Knievel, it's a wonder that I lived to see 11 years old. I was jumping my bike over ditches, jumping off roofs with a sheet to see if a parachute would work, choreographing fake fights. I love stuntmen, and he was one of my absolute favorites. I think this was probably a first for him in his career, getting smashed with a Pepsi machine. It's the second time Matuzak picks up a massive piece of machinery and squashes someone with it. And it occurs to me right here that if Die Hard is the Christmas action movie, then this is the Festivus equivalent, because it is 98% airing of grievances and feats of strength.
1: It's <laughs> true. Does that mean that I get to take the death of Richard Lynch here?
0: Oh, yeah. Take it away.
1: Oh, Lord. Jake makes the bad guy, Adams, climb a billboard throws him off of it. Adams is screaming the whole time as he falls through glass. Meanwhile, he is attached by the leg to a rope, so he swings into one of these convenient fires and burns to death, Chico style, screaming the entire time.
0: It really is one of the great dispatchings of a villain in all of 80s action film.
1: But the end. Everything's fine. Let's go home.
0: Which is literally the line as he throws his arms around the shoulders of his dead partner's wife and son, and they walk off into the sunset.
1: I think technically sunrise. It always seems to be the next morning after something that happened at night. You're
0: right. My fault.
1: Also, did they just hang out in that industrial park all night?
0: (laughs) For a couple of hours, at least.
1: To then just wait to leave.
0: I did notice one thing was missing here. No one was sitting on an ambulance with a blanket thrown around their shoulders.
1: Very good point. Now, going back to your question from earlier, was all of this just a setup to then show us that he's going to be the new husband and father? Or it's all just fairly avuncular? I don't know. It all seems fairly convenient because... He hasn't had a love interest at this point, which would be a big part of these kinds of movies. I don't know, though. Credits roll at that point, so we'll never know.
0: Well, we made a lot of goofs here, and you can laugh at this last line, too, if you want. It is funny. There is an absurdity to this whole thing, very clearly. But what I don't question in a final reckoning here is the movie's sincerity. It's another thing that wins me over. I think they genuinely mean to communicate that this is a family unit now. And that we are moving optimistically toward the future. One man force two.
1: Well, it does make me think about the dark side to all of this. That we were about to head into the highest crime rate years, the early 90s. At the time, the U.S. had the eighth highest murder rate in the world. I bet you can guess which country was at number one. In
0: 1989, I'm going to guess Colombia.
1: You are exactly correct. And in this year, 1989, Washington, D.C. was still considered the murder capital of the U.S. L.A. was not far behind, so it was a dangerous place to be, and the drug world was incredibly dangerous as well. Now, also in 1989, that was the sixth anniversary of the D.A.R.E. program, and that tank that we see at the end, that was not a made-up thing. In 85, the LAPD unveiled this new weapon, a 14-foot battering ram attached to an armored vehicle. The NAACP had to protest about this. They said, we don't need new weapons to be tried out on us. So I think about this very odd world that this film is living in. In the LAPD's annual report for that year, they talked about how their number one priorities were street gangs and drug traffickers. And so Jake Swan is certainly going after those, but with no sense of the actual law enforcement part behind it.
0: Well, I think we were looking at it from two different angles, which is good. I think you were thinking much more about social context in this case, whereas I was looking at it more artistically. What it made me think of was Ed Wood and how personally I give a lot of leeway to artists who are being utterly honest, sometimes even in spite of themselves. In this case, it's not transgressive like Ed Wood might have been. It is following a very distinct commercial formula, but it is so pure in that regard that it almost burns. There was no irony whatsoever intended by anyone involved in this process, so I'm not watching ironically. I think it's fascinating and a lot of fun. And here's a tip. Leaving ironic viewing behind is one of the greatest favors that you can do yourself as a film lover.
1: And let's extend that just as a person.
0: So learn from my mistakes. I only ended up here with one man force by evolving. Early on, when I might have encountered these films the first time around, say age 10 to late teens, I just wasn't interested. I was a serious kid, and I wanted to be serious about film. And you can put serious in quotes the same way we've been using bad or a number of other things. This stuff seemed dumb, and I wanted no part of dumb. I grudgingly moved from that to watching, ironically, not an uncommon thing for your late teens and early 20s. You get together in a group, you have a laugh at these movies' expense, the implication being that you are above it, but occasionally will take time to mockingly enjoy it. All of that is gone now. Guilty pleasures don't exist. There is no such thing. There is only pleasure. All that irony does is put up a buffer between you and genuine feeling, so just get rid of it. You'll be a lot happier. It takes an act of good faith and goodwill, what felt like an enormous one on my part, but I feel like I am at least a slightly better person than I previously was for being able to do that, for not shutting myself off from those things. So just to clarify, in case it's not obvious, we legitimately enjoy this film. It's an incredible example of a movie completely free of pretense that stretches genre filmmaking beyond its limits, and it's really fun.
1: Okay, you ready to have one last bit of fun? Okay. Let's play a game. There is a wonderful song in the film entitled Weekend Toys, that's (laughs) T-O-I-Z, as performed by Sugar Style. Of course. Now... I'm going to give you a list of names, and you have to tell me true or false, whether they are listed as one of the official songwriters. There were four, by the way.
0: Okay, I've got this. I feel 100% about this one.
1: Okay, let's see. Wheels. True. Incorrect. Oh, God, right out of the gate, I blew it. Rocky.
0: Absolutely true.
1: You got that one right. Dice.
0: No. No.
1: That one's true. God. The Sphinx with three X's. <laughs> that one's true? Nope, that was false. That
0: was a good one that you made up, though.
1: Thank you. Nitro.
0: That was an American gladiator.
1: That's true, and also not a songwriter. Hizzy.
0: I feel like it was a little too early for that, so no.
1: Good one. You, you're correct. Evil G. True. Definitely true. Shots with a Z.
0: Haven't we come up with four of these already? Didn't you say there were four? Nope. Okay, then this Still is number four.
1: Nope. Incorrect. T and A.
0: Definitely number four.
1: Nope. <laughs> TNT.
0: That's Travis Trudell.
1: <laughs> it is. And it's also the fourth songwriter.
0: Well, Travis, I hope you're reaping great royalties from that out there somewhere. Well, they just don't make them like this anymore. I think that's obvious. But just as importantly the proper method of delivery is almost gone too. This is a movie tailor-made to be grabbed off the video store shelf when you can't decide on anything else. One Man Forest was rented 10,000 times following a conversation just like this. What about this? Just get it. And that's how some of life's greatest discoveries were made. The only way it will be discovered now is if people tell other people about it. There's no stumbling across it on your video store shelf anymore unless you live in Austin or Seattle, probably. So we're telling people. We found out about it via Savage Gold, which is a program that Austin Film Society does every other month that's devoted to the obscure and unusual, typically projected straight from VHS. So now we're paying it forward. I don't know what else we can do for you short of adjusting your tracking. Do you think we covered it as far as why you chose it, why you feel like it's worthwhile for people to see?
1: I think so. I hope people discover John Matuzak and his very specific charms. I'm glad that somebody suggested this to me, and I hope other people check it out as well. There is one other pleasure I discovered inadvertently from this film. That is diving into the adjacent IMDb and Wikipedia entries for the actors and professionals who work on these kinds of films. It reminds me that there is absolute gold that can be stumbled across when perusing these resources. Entries written by crazed superfans, faceless studio employees, the subject's publicist or relatives, or even the subjects themselves. I've got a couple of cases in point. John Matuzak's entry gets very specific about motivations stemming from being bullied into what made him into the man that he would become. Stacey Q has quite an exhaustive outline covering her conversion to Buddhism, her personal appearances, collaborations, albums, tracks, singles, lyrics, style, etc. Not that she doesn't deserve it.
0: Imagine if she'd had two hits.
1: And then there's somebody like Brian Tochi who plays Jake's computer whiz buddy.
0: That guy's in everything.
1: He is. He has a huge career continues to do a lot of voice work these days. His bio entry is very um odd. It all comes down to the last few phrases that the person who wrote it put in. Besides several of the projects Brian is developing and creating, one is passionately closest to his heart, that of helping to fix a broken planet. With everyone's help, Brian believes it can and will be done, and you know what? I believe it too. There are some lovely people out there, and it gives me hope sometimes. You got any other final takes on this?
0: Well, I just want to make one last appeal. If you don't take my word for it, Heed the words of Edo Kiru. He's a Greek filmmaker and theorist, and he said, "I beseech you, learn to see the bad movies. They are sometimes sublime." He was all about taking the power back from the eggheads, and he was frequently talking smack about lantern favorites like Cocteau and Bresson. He thought there was an immense power in popular movements in the films shown in what he referred to as the local flea pits. He also said that an elite no longer holds a monopoly of imagination. He saw it as a great leveling, a springboard into everything from political revolution to embracing surrealism. So don't underestimate the majesty of bad films. You're just doing yourself a disservice. We could fill Yankee Stadium with the critics that history has proven wrong on this count. Bosley Crowther would be a VIP section all by himself. So when you hear people that are ready to consign cult films to history's dumpster, try to take the long view. Now this isn't to say that you have to like everything. There are plenty of things that I don't like. You can meet something on its own terms and then decide it's not for you, but until you've done that first part, you haven't given it an honest shot. Something like Bohemian Rhapsody comes to mind. I see some of the bad reviews that it's getting right now, and there is definitely a subtext in a lot of them that the film wasn't what the reviewer wanted it to be. If that's the case, then just say precisely that, not that it's bad. I'm almost positive that it achieves exactly what it set out to do, and I'm almost positive that I won't like it, but at least I won't be saying that it's a failure because it's not Tarkovsky. That's idiotic. It's not trying to be. In this example, I just happen to not care very much about what it's trying to be, which is a shame because I think Queen was revolutionary and Freddie Mercury's story is probably pretty compelling. They deserve better than a paint-by-numbers biopic, is basically what it comes down to. I think that we should be more put off by blandness and safely sanding off all the edges than by some crazy, no-budget genre picture that might miss a lot but is at least swinging for the fences. Any more, I'm more inclined to dismiss certain strains of Snoozeville middlebrow Oscar bait. I would rather watch a hundred Glenn or Glendas over the Reader or Revolutionary Road any day. Fifty years from now, all people will remember about the hours is Nicole Kidman's fake nose. Maybe that's happened already. Turn it off and watch showgirls instead. You know you want to. Give yourself permission and thank me
1: later. You tell him, babe. <laughs>
0: What's your recommendation? The store where I bought my soapbox?
1: <laughs> well, it is about the magic of film and the power it has to change lives. I chose Chuck Norris versus Communism from 2015, directed by Ilinka Kalugareanu. It's a documentary about communist Romania and the thousands of Western films on bootleg VHS tapes, mostly action movies, that were smuggled behind the Iron Curtain. I got to see this one on PBS, and it is wonderful to watch people explain how a single film opened their mind. Whether that was Last Tango in Paris, which one woman described like being struck by lightning, or even Lone Wolf McQuaid, which gave viewers a very unique idea of the West. The film mixes reenactment with reminiscences from citizens who lived through that time and who literally shared the tapes. You get what I did there? It's a good one. Because we went to see MST3K today. Anyway. Another really fun section is viewers talking about how they began to make a mental image of the woman who was almost solely responsible for doing all of the dubbing on these films. So I highly recommend it. And how about you?
0: Before I do mine, that's a great recommendation. I think that's exactly the kind of thing. It captures what I'm talking about. We can look down our nose at Canon Films, for instance, or Golan Globus all we like. But we're taking an awful lot for granted, if we did not have access to those things, or anything like that, if movies were that hard to come by, that it was a criminal act to possess them, those things would be worth their weight in gold. I really like that one too, that's a great choice. My choice is Fateful Findings from 2013, <laughs> oh, Lord. directed, written, produced, cast, edited, And catered by one Neil Breen, who also stars in it, along with Jennifer Autry, Clara Landrat, and Danielle Andrade. It's about a computer scientist that reunites with a childhood friend and hacks into government databases while facing the dire and fateful consequences of his mystical abilities that he obtained as a child.
1: Story of my life.
0: It has to be seen to be believed. By any tangible, measurable, traditional filmmaking metric, it is a complete failure. The phrase gross incompetence comes to mind. It's a good thing that it completely transcends that, and that is an act of sheer will by Neil Breen himself. He is without a doubt a true auteur. His vision is so uniquely bizarre, homemade, and self-aggrandizing that I can safely say no one but Neil Breen could have made this movie. That sincerity thing I was talking about? Neil Breen means this movie possibly more than anything anyone else has ever done. I salute his absolute confidence in himself and his utter devotion to his wacky dream. This one is destined to go down in cinema history as one of the all-time greats of the cult film pantheon.
1: So once again, that's to uh, uh, him. Great recommendations. (laughs) Chuck Norris versus Communism and Fateful Findings.
0: And that brings us to the end of Episode 90. First and foremost, we want to say a special thanks to Greg Nordland for bumping up his Patreon pledge this week. We appreciate that a great deal. If what we do here is valuable to you and you would like to support the show, we would certainly love for you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com magiclantern. The $5 a month level gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes, and those come out on the Mondays alternating with regular episodes, so you never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. We are on Twitter at Lantern underscore Cast, and I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Andy Wolverton, Audie Christianos, Travis Trudell, David Lawrence, Jesse Dampolo, Fred Smith, the fine gentleman at Fuds on Film, the High and Low podcast, a very cool show about the films of Akira Kurosawa that you should check out and our friends Terry Osterhout and Liz LaPoint, who will be soon launching their new podcast, Happily Cinemarried, so keep an eye out for that. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and now Spotify. Just about anywhere you get your podcasts, you can find us. Thank you to the nice person that left us an anonymous five-star rating on iTunes this week. If you'd like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally... You can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com.
1: And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast.